This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Spaceship Earth, a radio adaptation of Matt Wolf's fascinating new documentary film about the two-year Biosphere 2 experiment and the people who conceived it and brought it to life. Eight scientists are about to be sealed in an eight-story airtight terrarium. Shelley Taylor Morgan is standing by at the site at Oracle, Arizona. Hi, Shelley. Morning. What you're seeing here is the doorway that the eight biospherians are going to walk into and be sealed into for two years. The futuristic looking steel and glass structure is touted as an environmental laboratory and prototype for colonies in space. They'll spend two years in their prefab paradise trying to support themselves so that the rest of us can learn what it would be like if we had to move into a portable world on another planet. Its designers say it's science, its detractors say it's a tourist attraction run by questionable characters. It's starting to happen. As you can see, there they are there they saying go. goodbye. Doesn't this feel like they're going to the moon? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm expecting a blast off or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I'm getting chills as we sit here and watch this it, because it, it is. Really we really is. You know, we may look back upon this in a number of years and say that was where it all began. The experimenter enters the experiment in the grand tradition. This is an incredible moment. The future is here. It started in San Francisco. I was 17. I was on my way to a rehearsal, locked the door of the apartment, and there was an older man locking the door of his apartment just next door. 
I'd never seen this man. He said, what are you doing? And I pulled out this book, and I said, well, actually, I want to do what's in this book. He said, what's that? So I described this slim novella called Mount Analog by a French writer. His name is René Domal. Mount Analog is about a group of people who decided to land on an island that didn't exist on any map. And I loved this book, and I wanted to do what those people did. He said, forget the book. That's what I'm going to do. I said, well, as long as there's theater and dance. He said, okay. And this was John Allen. That night, he said he was calling all of his friends in New Mexico to come to San Francisco. So a number of us moved in together on my 18th birthday. I had left New England because I didn't want to get married in New England and be the typical New England wife, have typical New England kids and live that lifestyle. Wonderful people, but I didn't, that wasn't me. I was waiting to figure out what the heck I was going to do. And I was desperate. I was panicking. John Allen called me up and said, get your butt here. Quick. This is where it's happening planetarily. There was a co-worker that I had at Lawrence Laboratory who said, well, go check out John Allen in San Francisco. 1967 in San Francisco, there was all this, you know, people doing things together in groups. And that was interesting to me. So I went. People were doing all sorts of things at that time. There were a lot of people starting collectives, communes, and we wanted to last. So we didn't take drugs. That would kind of blow it. If one wants to make a contribution to history, you notice those moments of opening, and that's when you act. We sat down in the living room. What is it that we're going to do? Well, we could do theater, we could do art, we could do business, we could do uh, science, we could do... And then somebody said, let's do all of it. Okay. Set up the theater of all possibilities. That was our first project together. Theater engages the entire organism. Movement, thought, emotion. Gives you insights into yourself. Building a foundation from which we could go on and do other projects. I wanted to document what we were doing. It was history. It was important. So I taught myself 16-millimeter filmmaking. I did a lot of handheld, shaky... Well, I was forced to have a certain kind of a style as, as a filmmaker because of lack of funds and um, lack of knowledge also. I love to get close-ups and faces. You know, it's like you're catching the essence of a person. I, 
I'd met very charismatic people before. I'd met geniuses before, but there's no one like John Allen. It was a feeling of rightness that, yes, this is what I want to do. This is a person I want to go on this voyage into the unknown with. I love him. I love him. I still love him. I, I, I wouldn't say it was a... Yes, it was a relationship. Yeah, it was a, a very particular kind of relationship, which was based on friendship. He's 12 years older than I am, and we did have a relationship extremely platonic in a kind of a strange way, but, you know, I was very fond of him, and I guess he was fond of me, and suddenly he asked me to marry him. Oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, so anyway, I did. When we'd gotten married, it wasn't for the normal sort of married life type of thing. It was, we were married to make a project. Being born in uh, Oklahoma, in those days, Oklahoma was still a frontier state. Frontiers are very uncertain. That's by definition, right? Uh, frontiers where two or more cultures are interfacing with each other. And so uh, it is dramatic always what is going to happen. I worked at a meat banking plant and did union organizing. Worked as a metallurgist. Was in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, got an MBA at Harvard. And I wandered around thinking about what I wanted to do. I knew that would have to be something unusual. I was fundamentally interested in transformation of where we're ordinarily at with what the human potential could be. I think we'd had it with San Francisco. The scene there became corrupted by commercialism. We just decided we wanted to have our own place. We found a beautiful piece of land that wouldn't cost much and where we could build a ranch. We called ourselves synergists. We needed to become more directly connected with growing food and not just being consumers. We were workaholics, running the ranch and the theater. Johnny was a very good leader, and he instilled that. If you feel that you've been given permission to go do any kind of a task, no matter, almost no matter what it is, you'll do it. Our group was inspired by a lot of different thinkers. The whole Earth catalog, that beautiful cover, looking at the planet as a whole. That was really thrilling the works of William S. Burroughs. He was seeing that there was a countdown to ecological disaster, themes that we were interested in. We read Spaceship Earth by Buckminster Fuller. Bucky Fuller had pioneered the idea of the geodesic dome. I was handed the task to build one this is a way of learning by doing. 
to be pushed to the limits of your skills. The dome symbolized a unity that reflected the values of the ranch. The struts of a ball have tremendous strength together, but individually, they don't have that kind of cohesive strength. That's how we worked. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It was October 1969 that I arrived at the ranch. They happened, in fact, to be in the middle of a theater rehearsal. The door burst through and 20 to 25 people with really high energy entered the room. It was kind of like a, a good omen. It was like I'm stepping into something totally new. I was born in Brooklyn, uh, Flatbush, so I'm quite a New York kid. I worked as a taxi driver. I was a proofreader at Time Life Books. I was a court reporter for a while. Oh, and a social worker. I really was looking for something different. I was such an urbanite. People would say, pick that two by four up. And I'd think to myself, two by four. What could that refer to? Johnny said, everybody here needs to be in charge of something. We try to run this as a work democracy. What do you want to be in charge of? And I said, I haven't a clue. Johnny came up with the idea of an enterprise of having an orchard. I said, I'm on for that. I really fell in love with soil and trees and really keeping that connection with the whole natural world. The ranch was a first step in learning about sustainability. So we saw an opportunity. We could make sustainable, viable projects around the world. Here we were, not that long into making the ranch a sustainable place and the gardens were going and it was all happening. I think maybe Johnny thought it was all too successful now and that we had to move to the next realm. The magic of the entire enterprise was to always increase the challenge. Johnny actually said, I think we should build a ship. We wanted to go someplace where we certainly had never been before. There was a new era for our projects. It would go planetary. We went to my family home in Berkeley where we set up our living space so that we could build the ship on the shore in Oakland. We thought, if we can build a ship, an ocean-going ship, we could do anything. Our ship is called the Heraclitus. The construction of the ship was pretty much a performance. Margaret Augustine is the primary architect of our projects. Margaret, who was 19 or 20, kind of rose to the occasion when we were building the Heraclitus. Margaret says, I'm going to run the construction site. Freddie Dempster learn celestial navigation. In a relatively benign setting like Synergia Ranch, you can make mistakes and you learn that you made a mistake. But in this case, your life depends on these things working. The day of the launch was very dramatic because we had this high tide 
and people had been working 24-hour shifts. We had booked a towboat to pull us into the water. We had built it, and in theory it would float, but we didn't know what was going to happen. And then there's a jolt. It was just slipping out there. And like we were moving. We sailed out from San Francisco Bay, sailed out under the Golden Gate Bridge. And when we got out in the ocean, the waves were huge, literally 25 to 30 feet high. Nothing was tied down the way it should have been. The radar broke and fell in the ocean. We certainly were learning quickly, yes. And for some reason, I wasn't afraid. And I don't think anybody was afraid. It was one of those transitional, transformative moments, indeed. Well, now we were free. There's a strong nomadic nature to our projects. Oh, we toured around the world. You know, I'm a broke Oklahoma boy. How am I going to support all this stuff? <laughs> How did you support it? Enterprises. We weren't a commune. We were a corporation. We started businesses around the world in order to make money. We had to survive. We had to pay for everything. We were quite capitalistic. <laughs> you know, we were never at any of our projects into profit maximization. But without sustainable, viable economics, these projects can't last. It's unusual to find business partners who are willing to think long-term. Edbass was an integral part of our businesses around the planet. He really liked this a sense of exploration, sense of adventure. Edbass is a billionaire from a prominent family in Fort Worth, Texas. The Basses, their money was in oil. We formed a joint venture with Ed, and we had a particular kind of a deal with him. He would put forward the capital to buy certain properties, and then we would go there and work to enhance their value, make something, something amazing. So we built a hotel in Kathmandu, we opened an art gallery in London. I spent 10 years of my life taking care of our land in the Australian outback. We started touring theater 
We played in every continent, including Antarctica. The idea to start projects in different biomes was to understand the whole planet experientially. Small groups are engines of change. Johnny provided the ideas that coalesced our whole group into doing collective action. Under his leadership, we could achieve things in common action that we could not otherwise achieve. I lost my dad when I was 16. I often institute father figures. And I think I had a projection on John. I may still have it. I wouldn't say I'm over it. He was very charismatic, very dynamic, exploding with energy. He's a fallible human being. John can be tempestuous, big time. But John is definitely a genius. To explore the history of the planet Earth and its future, and to examine man's relation to the planet Earth and his future, the Institute of Ecotechnics invited outstanding scientists, artists of the avant-garde, explorers, and managers of our present time to a four-day conference at their facility in the south of France. This film is the record of those shared investigations and experiences, fears and hopes, ignorance and knowledge of the mystery and patterns of planet Earth. We were doing conferences, and we held them in different parts of the world. They started with specific biomes, a conference on deserts, on oceans, on jungles. Pretty soon we ran out of biomes, so we did the planet Earth. Dr. Alexander King sounds a note of warning. We are living in an unusually warm period. The small overall temperature changes lead to ice age glaciation. Population increase concentrated in enormous cities, destruction of natural environment, and increasing disparity between rich and poor countries is leading to a catastrophe. Yet most of the destruction is caused by human ignorance. Changes were happening on an enormous scale. We were actually in danger of destroying the planet as we know it. We realized that we had to do something. Thank you very much, King. Any idea that can be conceived in our time can be executed in our time. It's a hell of a mantra. Phil Hawes, our resident architect, came up with a Adobe spaceship. The idea of making an enclosed mini-world rose from that moment. And in this biospheric bank are thousands of species of life and native people. They better be adventurers, they better be artists, and they better be scientists. We loved this idea that when you start to think of colonies in space, suddenly you are thinking of sustainable living on Earth. I think the whole project, I mean, I really like that it was science fiction without the fiction. This idea is like silent running. That was an incredible <laughs> film. 
But to see this floating world and, you know, the, the guy taking care of the wilderness area and little rabbits hopping. How are you today? Hmm? Feeling good? Here is this capsule of life from Earth that's being nurtured and kept alive. And the guy who's in love with the system, which I totally identified, you know, and of course the very poignant thing that this is the last refuge of Earth life. What about the forests? You don't think anyone should care about these forests? What's going to happen if these forests and all this incredible beauty is lost for all time? Nobody was building a long-term life system to go into space. No one was doing that. We thought, here's a niche. Let's go for it. When you even visualize a colony off the planet, suddenly you're rethinking what's possible. Some of us are born with far better naturalist sensitivities than interpersonal sensitivities. So, yeah, I usually get along with plants more than I do most people. John said, we're going into the space race. I, I said, what? He said, yeah, we're, we're going to build this thing called the biosphere that's a prelude to extraterrestrial biospheres. And so uh, we want you to design the desert. I was working at the University of Arizona Desert Laboratory, and, well, you know, compared to the normal academic career, compare that to launch humanity into an extraterrestrial evolutionary trajectory? It was visionary. If we're going to go to Mars and the moon, we'd better know how to make a biosphere. A nice, simple definition that I like of a biosphere is a virtually closed system with plants and animals and the atmospheres all inside. If we're going to build the first human-designed biospheric system, we're going to make it beautiful. We're going to put in mini rainforest, a desert, the savanna, be an ocean with a living coral reef would be populated by hundreds of carefully selected plants and animal species, including eight people. We called the project Biosphere 2 because we wanted people to say, well, where's Biosphere 1? Biosphere 1 is the Earth. No one really knew what we need if we're ever going to go into space on a permanent basis. We don't see how big the process is. John Allen had suggested, well, the whole point of this is not to do rigorous science from the get-go. The point of this is to learn how to make a biosphere that can support human occupants in an extraterrestrial setting. 
It won't work the first time. It probably won't work for the first several times, but each time we're likely to learn more faster. There were huge numbers of scientific consultants. The University of Arizona, the Smithsonian Marine Systems Lab, and the New York Botanic Garden. And are we going to put any engineering devices? Biosphere 2 was going to build on the work of all of our projects. Agriculture, design, engineering, technology and ecology, all the things that we have done together. It was a massive construction project. And these were the people that could do it. When we were building the Heraclitus, Margaret Augustine ran the construction site. Now she was the CEO and co-architect of Biosphere 2. When you're doing something that no one has ever done before, you learn by doing. Without a project of this undertaking, you wouldn't really be able to feasibly start a colony, say, in Moon or Mars. Marie Harding was the chief financial officer. We, we had budgets. The final cost was $200 million. That's, for that, that is like peanuts. It was quite corporate. I even wore nail polish. <laughs> and also, of course, there was um, Ed Bass. Edward Bass the second oldest of the four Bass brothers, by some estimates the fourth wealthiest family in the United States. John Allen's ideas and Edward Bass's money have spawned a number of worldwide ventures. Creating Biosphere 2 as a business made sense for several reasons. For one, we thought it could be very profitable. Ed would invest a huge amount of money figuring there would be no payback in the short term, but when we go to space, Biosphere 2 would yield enormous technological spin-offs and that then he could license and people would pay him for. Ed was also passionate about ecology. All you gotta do is watch his face light up when he talks about it. From the ecological point of view, man is very much a part of the problem. I was able to put these together in my own personal interest and really become involved in ecological matters. We'd been thinking about the human relationship with the environment for decades. Biosphere 2 is totally an awesome new kind of approach to studying and coming up with solutions to Earth problems. We have, in the last year, put out a paper that said we had a program for Biospherian candidates. We had maybe 15 or so people, Biospherians in training, and the selection was going to be made from that group. There wasn't a type of person. There wasn't eight clones that showed up. This is the kind of human being who would do this. It was, that wasn't predictable. I'm Jane Pointer. I'm a Biospherian candidate. Well, my nickname is Laser. Uh, I like to be in the middle of the action. 
I like to get things done. I know that the eight people who go in will come out different people and come out as a group of people probably incomparable to any other group in history. Many people say, what, you know, why, why are you getting locked up in the biosphere? I don't call it, I don't think of it as being locked up in the biosphere. In fact, I think of it as locking everybody else out. <laughs> you look for who are the free thinkers. So I automatically eliminated uh, all the people that follow people. John Allen was a brilliant, charismatic leader because he simply met emotional needs. He was a mind musician. He really knew what people needed and tried to motivate them by supplying it or withholding it sometime. I thought part of John Allen's genius was helping people to realize it's all theater. I don't know that I ever had the feeling that we couldn't pull it off. I knew we could pull it off. Maybe I was naive, but maybe not. Proved this. We thought it was necessary to build a model. We built the test module. Let's have all the Biospherian candidates go in there. What's going on today is testing of the systems that we expect to use in Biosphere 2. This will be the longest closure with a person in a, a totally enclosed environment where all the food, the water, the air, the waste is recycled within that system. This is my uh, daily exercise as well as harvesting. Botanist Linda Lay was sealed inside a test module for a three-week stay. You open the door, you close the airlock behind you. And suddenly you understand that you are in relationship, I mean intimate, metabolic relationship with everything inside there. Everybody is anxiously awaiting for the moment when you step through that door. Preparations for interplanetary travel have begun near Tucson. As Tina Naughton tells us, spaceships aren't involved yet, only determination. These chosen eight are about to step into an airtight city called the Biosphere 2. The crew, chosen from scientific experts, will live inside the enclosed world for two years. Only video and the telephone will link them to the outside. They are the darlings of the new age, protectors of the planet, Pioneers blazing a trail for outer space. They are Biospherian. Uh, no one's ever done this before. No one's ever uh, built or lived in or managed a total closed system. It's an ethnically diverse group, each chosen for their science expertise. It's a true research project with the eight humans as much a subject of the research as researchers themselves. I got a phone call. Margaret, she said, what do you think about the idea of joining the crew? And I don't think there was any pause between the end of her sentence and me saying yes. 
am I going to go stir crazy over two years? Have I really brought in enough uh, sneakers and toothbrushes and books and videos and tape cassettes to uh, to to keep my intellectual mind uh, happy? I, I suppose emotionally that's going to be the uh, the challenge. I feel grateful to be given the opportunity to carry on the work that we have been doing over the last five years, to be part of an experiment that is both scientifically challenging and physically remarkably beautiful. I was invited to come up to the biosphere, and I thought, well, this is a great, bright group of people. They're really into what they're doing. They're exciting. They're excited. They're doing cool things. They're wacky, and I fit right in. I was always the girl in the classroom who took care of the fish. I did projects for all the science fairs when I was little. Mostly people, I felt at that time, people didn't like me very much. I was living in Tucson in the mid-80s, and I was kind of in my save-the-world type of headspace. And a friend said, Linda, you can't do it all by yourself. And that was, it was really a moment, one of those aha moments. When I joined the group, it was a magnetic center, you know, it just kind of pulled me in. We all got sent out to different places around the world to collect the plants and species. And to build an ecosystem from all of the pieces is just a big, huge puzzle. It was biblical. It was filling Noah's Ark, essentially. Deciding what to include has not been easy. For example... When we made the decision to put in something like a hummingbird, you know how many flowers a day a hummingbird needs? The best we could find was 1,400 fuchsia flowers. An important part of this was making a beautiful world. Making... Garden of Eden. I loved being totally absorbed in this. I didn't need anything more. Ready? And action. Hello there. I'm Rue McClanahan, and I'm here in Oracle, Arizona at Biosphere 2, where one of the most adventurous and important experiments in human existence has begun. People like both wonder and sensation. <laughs> I mean, so there's an appetite and an audience for both. No, I was not a publicist. We didn't even have a press department. We had no press release. They want to just do it down the bed. It never entered our head that it was going to be something grand and spectacular. It was going to blow everyone's socks off. It started to ignite a lot of interest. Margaret and John decided that they should hire a professional PR firm from L.A. The locals came in, they reported faithfully, and then my job was to leapfrog up to the national and international networks. Here we had this marvelous structure, and we had to do it right. We had to beam them up somehow. This live news event package will include worldwide press coverage. Biosphere 2 is an idea that has intrigued Hollywood for years. Celebrities will walk us through the diverse biomes. 
I am a big fan of uh, everything that has to do with the environment. They'll present profiles of the bionauts who've journeyed the world over, gathering what will live in their new environment. Network presidents agree, environmental programming is a must for the 90s. Definitely went viral. It was a global curiosity. Biosphere 2. 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 What an exciting assignment. I'm telling you, it was so incredible. And I just came back from an ocean, a desert, a marsh, a tropic zone, a savanna. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the president and CEO of Space Biosphere Ventures and five of the eight Biospherians. Welcome them, please. Okay, have you got the picture? Is this something? I'm telling you. People wanted to be enchanted. The notion of eight human beings being separated from life, from the availability of food. And I think it tapped into something in people. I had trepidation that the media attention was too much too soon, that we weren't quite ready for that. No air, water, or other materials will pass the airtight glass boundaries that enclose them. But you get no new air at all from the outside. That's right. What we put in when we enter in March is what we will have in 100 years. You don't cheat and take any air from the outside environment into the biosphere for the entire two-year experiment. There won't be any cheating for 100 years, not just the two years, for the 100 years. We were making it up as we went. Two of the Biospherians are outside Biosphere 2 this morning in Oracle, Arizona. They are botanist Linda Lay and the team's only physician, Dr. Roy Walford. Good morning to both of you, and what in the heck are you wearing? Good morning. Well, these are our uh, suits and uh, uniforms that we wear on state occasions like this one. Oh, I see. You look like something out of Star Trek to me. Along with the debate over whether this is science or what critics call ecological entertainment, there are some darker questions. The idea for the biosphere was not born among a group of scientists. It was born on a commune. In fact, some of those who lived there say it had the trappings of a cult. The questions center around John Allen, the man considered the driving force behind Biosphere 2. Three former residents have told ABC News that Allen preached a blend of ecology and doom. There are accounts of how the commune members took part in strange costumed rituals. A Biosphere 2 employee told NBC News the people running the project are an odd group of individuals. He insisted on having his identity protected. They don't really strike me as scientists, more like a group of people thrown together and given a role to play. The appetite for sensationalism sells papers. Describing complex projects doesn't sell papers. Did you feel attacked? Well, I was attacked, but I didn't feel it, and I was. <laughs> Here is your brainwashing cult leader. <laughs> I'm sure John felt a huge amount of discomfort at having his accustomed role as director of the drama threatened. Frankly, I don't know any human organization that does an innovative startup that doesn't have cult-like aspects especially in the corporate sector. We are hardwired to create cults in the innovative phase of uh, an organization. We're, we're waiting! <laughs> <laughs> I 
here to Mars. How exciting! Smooth sailing. Younger every day. <laughs> Before we went in, we wrote a play called The Wrong Stuff. Our play was everything that could go wrong in the biosphere went wrong. Thinking that, okay, if we did it on stage, then we don't have to do it in the biosphere. for something that you don't even know what it is. That's what an expedition is. It's a journey into the unknown. We can be a threat to our biosphere, play a destructive role, or we can be stewards, contributing to the reciprocal maintenance of natural ecological processes. It was such a relief when the cameras were finally off. I went into the wilderness area, which is the area that I was managing. And I rained, I turned the rain on. Just to wash all the air, thinking, okay, let's just wash all this other stuff out of here and begin anew. the reality that it was just the eight of us in this amazing new world started to hit. You can think and think and think and think about, oh, I'm going away for two years, but suddenly, wow, we're here. You know, we were pioneers. We were the first biospherians. There was also this pride. Hey, you've given us a new world to, you know, figure out how to live in, and we're going to grow up with this thing. We're going to take care of it. Sally Silverstone, she used to joke, I managed a mental hospital in India. You know, that's nothing compared to managing eight biospherians. I was a huge space nut when I was a kid. I loved the idea of colonizing other planets. I loved science fiction movies where people were all living under glass domes and you know, growing their own food. 
I was really interested to see if we were going to be able to feed ourselves off this tiny piece of land. Tabor McCallum, the wonder kid of, of Bias Route 2. Tabor is a, a genius, so he brought that to the table, but he also really knew a lot about closed systems from his experience in diving. So he did a lot of the work involved with testing of the atmosphere and soils. Jane Pointer, our field manager of the agriculture. Jane was wonderful with the animal systems. She took care of our chickens and our goats, our wonderful goats. Taper and Jane and Gay and Laser, they were couples, you know, before they came in. Laser, he appears and he can fix anything. So he knew that thing like the back of his hand. Gay Alling, marine biologist. She had put this little ocean together against all odds. Roy Walford was our medical officer. He was a great scientist looking at the effect of diet on the aging process. Each week, Dr. Roy Walford swims two miles and then runs another 10. You probably wouldn't guess he was 60 years old. What's more, Dr. Walford says at that age, his life is only about half over. 120 years, he says, is his life expectancy, maybe more. Roy was your archetypal mad scientist come avant-garde theater person and explorer rolled up into one. We were all working together because we all had this common goal and it was uh, something we all really believed in. My absolute joy inside Biosphere 2 was to get up really, really early in the morning to just go out onto the little balcony overlooked our agriculture system. Very early in the morning, I'd make myself a cup of mint tea and um, just watch the sun come up over the biosphere. It was absolutely phenomenal. We have to take care of our biosphere because it's going to take care of us. Everything was being recycled. Everything was being replaced. The nutrients were all being put back into the same system. Everyone was super aware that Biosphere 2 was literally our lifeboat. We had to manage carefully the cycles of carbon dioxide and oxygen because our greatest fear was that CO2 was going to get so high that we'd be driven out of the biosphere. I loved seeing the consequences of my actions right away. If I picked a sweet potato out of the soil, there would be a poof of carbon dioxide. We could kind of get a good feeling for what our impact was on the atmosphere. I have a personal relationship with every single plant in the rainforest, in the savannah, in the desert, either having touched it because I collected it, or grew it, or accessioned it, or photographed it, planted it, propagated it. I have connections with, uh, with the whole world of life in here. 
Roy was filming continually. Roy's filming of life inside Biosphere 2 is tremendously valuable data. We were learning the most phenomenal amount from that system. We actually had 64 separate research projects going on. There were over a thousand sensors, tons and tons of data. We were monitoring critical vectors like trace gases and what was happening with the atmosphere. Everything accelerated. The cycles were literally thousands of times faster in Biosphere 2. I'm making measurements in the analytical lab so that we can better understand the biogeochemical cycles that are occurring in Biosphere 2. With conventional scientific thinking, you had hypotheses. But we did a lot of what we did based on more of a different way of doing science. The idea was, here's all this stuff, and what's going to happen? The planet urgently needs to study biospheres. This is the first laboratory. If we can transplant a coral reef and keep it healthy, if we can run a farm and not pollute the atmosphere, the water, recycle all the nutrients, there are huge lessons to be learned here. Okay, I'd like to uh, welcome everybody to uh, Biosphere 2. Come on in. Thank you. All right, thank you. That is Mark Nelson. Mark Nelson, he's the communications officer inside. People started showing up, wanting to see everything, and they wanted tours. You know, they'd heard about this amazing place, so we set up a visitor center. We're hoping that that would pay for a great deal of it, which it didn't. Hello. Where do we get the T-shirts? What we're upset is that there's no multiculturalism inside. Yes, I would like to know. I would like to know what a young black woman from Brooklyn would do in a biosphere, huh? Nothing can get in and nothing can get out. I'm wondering. I'm wondering how how long they can last in there without getting sick or something. Emily, do you think you're going to live in a place like that someday? Yeah. This is an excellent model for the future, but it won't work. People are too mean. People are too abusive. People abuse our world. Our world's going down the tubes. We're listening to Spaceship Earth, a radio adaptation of Matt Wolf's documentary film about Biosphere 2 and the people who conceived it and brought it to life. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. The biosphere dazzles the eye. There is no dispute about that. But is it science? Uh, it is a, a great adventure. And as adventure, you know, fine, that's not science. University of Texas ecologist Bassett McGuire and other scientists say no matter what happens inside the biosphere, nothing will be proved because the showy experiment cannot be duplicated to double-check results. And they say the project combines too many unknowns. We were having such a wonderful time in there. And then this really shocking thing happened. Jane Pointer put her hand into a grain threshing machine without turning it off. I actually remember unpacking the threshing machine and finding the tip of her finger. There was debate whether it would be a breach of protocol for her to leave. We decided, okay, 
If Jane eats nothing outside, goes to the hospital in the ambulance with me, I'm there the whole time to make sure nothing non-kosher happens. And then we bring her back through the airlock. And we thought it would be just a blip. Biospherian Jane Pointer had to emerge briefly for surgery on a finger. It was later learned that she carried a duffel bag full of supplies back in with her. I put some of the stuff in the bag. Uh, you know, what could one say? What are you doing, bringing stuff in the biosphere? Bad news. And she came back with two duffel bags, computer parts, maybe a, an extra T-shirt. It's a really interesting thing to, to see how the media suddenly made Biosphere 2 into a game show where the only question was, will eight people stay in there for two years and will everything work perfectly? Directors of the Biosphere 2 project are defending themselves against charges of public deception. In the forefront now is the question of whether living in this earthbound enclosed environment is possible without a lot of help from the outside. Once the negativity started, John was very upset and hurt. Don't show that, or I'm gonna do something. There was a lot of paranoia. Margaret and John wanted to control the situation. I told Margaret, disclose everything and you'll be all right. But Margaret did not agree with this point of view. Margaret, I'd like to ask you something because from the tone of it, I'm a little surprised. You're making it sound as though this is part of normal procedure, and I'm wondering if... Margaret and John started to become more secretive. And this only reinforced the idea that there was something to hide. I'll tell you what was really stressful <laughs> when Jane got back in, she was pretty much incapacitated. We had to take up her farming work. And I do remember, you know, Roy pretty early on saying that he resented that he didn't have as much time to do research because he was taking part in farming chores. People are people and, you know, squabbling, and personality conflicts. Nobody knew what it would be like to live with seven people for two years. Nothing improved morale like a really good meal. We had no artificial sugar at all inside Biosphere 2, so all of our birthday cakes were banana flavored. I was really proud of my birthday cakes because it was extremely difficult to make a cake with no butter, a few eggs, hardly any oil and no sugar. I knew that cake was going to disappear in seconds. <laughs> banana was the best candidate to try and make wine. I think the banana wine might have been good eventually, but it never lived that long. So <laughs> the minute it had alcoholic content, that was it. I had this dream 
Voyager 2 is starting to levitate. It's starting to go into orbit. And so I'm madly running and I'm saying, you know, the other seven, we're all running to be the first people to see the Earth from inside Biosphere 2. We were like an intrepid group of astronauts on the moon or Mars. I was outside looking in, working with mission control. Take a little tour around. This is the computer room and the telex room. Mission control was an entire team recording the data from Biosphere 2. My office was in mission control on second floor, right down the hall from the CEO. When you're doing the finance ends of things, you're not a front person. You're hidden behind the scenes. And I made it a purpose often to run around the biosphere most every day and look at it. It was my exercise. It was my daily run. I felt very, very connected to everybody in there. Every day, John was in mission control monitoring the project. People had different pressures on them by the enormity of the project and its profile in the media. John Allen, he's always thinking about the project itself, thinking about every possible thing that he thought could go wrong. There was this mysterious thing that happened. There's a sudden spike increase in CO2. I mean, it was a substantial rise in carbon dioxide. I couldn't finish a long sentence without stopping to take a breath or two. Walking up the steps, I could only walk a couple steps and I'd have to stop and take a breath. You know, the onset of winter was kind of scary times. As the days got shorter, we were pretty scared. One, that we couldn't control CO2. Whereas food also got shorter, crops took longer to mature. We had to make some pretty hard decisions because some crops were just way more productive than others, even though we might have been sick of eating that particular thing. Beetroot soup, beetroot salad, and <laughs> with a side of beetroot. Roy Walford, who was our doctor, his theory was that a low-calorie diet was the secret to longevity. Roy's whole thing was that if you did it intelligently, you could half starve to death and live well to 120 years. And this was the perfect research opportunity for him. I made this calculation. If this weight loss continues, I will be minus 90 pounds when I leave. We saw that the oxygen was really getting low to a point where it could cause brain damage. And I think one of the reasons that our group of eight we were belligerent towards each other, was we were suffocating and starving. The fighting is taking away from us coalescing as a group to accomplish our objectives. John said, oh, you need to start doing some advanced yoga so you don't use as much oxygen. I started to resent John Allen. We had occasional meetings with John and via video. There was a lot of personal animosity towards John. 
John Allen controls who gets to communicate with whom. Mm -hmm. And there are certain people that I'm not supposed to talk to who are scientists, who I would really like to talk to, particularly about oxygen. And uh, these are people that I'm not supposed to talk with directly. John, he had created this whole world. I think a part of him, like any red-blooded white American male, wanted that godlike power. And the actors go on. It's dramatic. Nobody knows. Till the very end, what is going to happen? It was an experiment in humans in a way. There were many times I would get calls from reporters saying, is it true that? And I would say, I don't think so, but I'll check and get back to you. And lo and behold, it was true. Eyewitness News has learned there is a potential problem at the biosphere near Oracle. Hours before that huge experiment was sealed, biosphere officials secretly installed a CO2 scrubber, a mechanical device to remove CO2 from the atmosphere inside biosphere. One of the top scientists resigned over that added technology. He and some others charge it flies in the face of the original concept. A CO2 scrubber that was not uh, divulged to the, the media and the rest of the world would seem to me to, to say that they've changed the rules. There was so much to do made about inconsequential things like the famous carbon scrubber. That could only take out a limited amount of CO2. It wasn't going to save us. And we used that sparingly. But we needed to be much more transparent with the outside world. Biosphere 2 is billed as a search for scientific truth, but the principles behind it seem to spend an awful lot of their time stonewalling. Biosphere officials turned down our request for interviews. We didn't have any better luck when we caught up with one of those officials, John Allen, and an aide at a scientific conference in Alabama. Can, can you not answer any questions? I was tremendously frustrated by the criticisms and misunderstandings of Biosphere 2. Everybody focused on the carbon dioxide scrubber. People did not understand the point. We were people who recognized that climate change is a threat, trying to develop a means to counteract that threat. Biosphere 2 brings you a visceral sense of how delicate everything is. We were all tense. The project wasn't going right. Things were falling apart. People were losing control. Of course, when people feel like they're losing control, bad things happen in all kinds of directions. Critics are calling one of the most outrageous scientific scandals of the century. Bad vibes in Biosphere 2. It's the grand experiment in the desert. Science. 
thanks to the people that have volunteered tremendous time and effort into this committee to give advice on scientific matters to Biosphere 2. The Science Advisory Committee was established by scientists from major institutions that could give the project the scientific credibility it was losing. Some other people started to be involved to come in, and I think there was some conflicts going on in that arena. I, I can tell you, no, this is... Let me finish, please, let me finish. The scientific committee, they certainly would have been happy to take over and use Mr. Bass's money to do a very different version of Biosphere. One of the interesting things we're going to do, I want to do next, is to look at the light CO2. And clearly John was upset. He thought he was losing control. I'm still very concerned about a matter what of... What did you just say? I'm saying we're going to vet it. A simple procedure... John called me in. Then he said, the establishment is trying to take over and that Ed Bass had turned on him. And I thought, wait a minute, John has turned on Ed, it sounded like. That set off alarms to me. I felt like I had to say something to the Scientific Advisory Committee. We were totally upset about Tony doing this in such an underhanded way. It was pretty much gossip-mongering. We asked Tony to come and face us all on a video uplink and tell us what he had said to the advisory committee. I think what the problem I saw was that John Allen was having what looked like paranoid delusions, and it frightened me. For you to take this kind of agenda to that committee really burns me because, to my mind, they have heard too much of this shit. I was really angry with Tony. It was crazy to me. Biosphere 2 was a genius of John as a leader. I'm sensitive to this situation because I am the product of a dysfunctional family. What I see going on here is abusive parents and you eight almost trapped in there like children. I'm just really quite pissed off because there's no way you can really respond to personality, conflict, power, projections, or, or even as you're, you're going on you know, abusive parent projections. Some of them were really angry. It was a good thing they were inside and I was outside. Tony, if, if you talk about what John Allen said, then I would like John Allen to be part of the meeting. Then they took me to see John Allen. That one I remember. John looks at me and he says, in Dante's Inferno, betrayal is the sin that puts people at the deepest level of hell. He got up, walked around the desk, and hugged me, and I hugged him, and he said, never again. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, never again. As I look at Biosphere 2 and I'm ready to enter, I take my last breaths of this atmosphere, knowing that I will take breaths from a different atmosphere from all of you for two years. Not exactly. Biospherians are once again breathing our air. It's being pumped inside, about 10% of Biosphere's total atmosphere. From the beginning, Biosphere 2 was built as a totally contained, virtually sealed experiment. Pumping air inside? What now? 
If the management had handled things differently, the result would have been different. I actually don't blame the press. Margaret and John promised too much. Theirs was to have been a self-sustaining three-acre world, a model for colonizing space. But crops failed. Fresh air was pumped in. Critics say these violations have invalidated the experiment. It's self-contained, but it's not self-sustaining. And so the biosphere, as it was touted, is a total failure. The day they pumped oxygen, people went down to kind of like get a sniff of, of the pure oxygen coming in. In 10 minutes, in 10 seconds maybe, I felt decades younger, full of energy. Once this oxygen came in, it was like this huge cloud had lifted. First thing that happened spontaneously is most of us started running around and laughing. And I realized I haven't heard the sound of running feet in months and months. The negativity just kind of dissipated. I felt part of that living entity that was Biosphere 2. My agriculture system was just becoming really good. You know, it was maturing, things were working well, and I wanted to see what was going to happen next. Joe, as we've said, Sunday's the big day. The eight men and eight women who've been locked inside this biosphere will be coming out. Today, workers were scrubbing windows and building a big stage, all in preparation for Sunday. That's when the biospherians exit this greenhouse, exactly two years after they went in. What is it going to feel like after being two years in this world to suddenly step out into the other one? I didn't want to come out. I did not want to come out. I was volunteering to stay in. It was amazing that from a dream and an adobe spaceship that this gleaming marvel had appeared in the desert. I had the adventure of my life. I look at the trees that we planted from seed, and I just love it. it my heart is there. It's really there. It probably will always be there. On the re-entry day, we were all inside the biosphere, waiting, waiting, waiting for Jane Goodall to finish her speech. When I began in 1960 in the Gombe National Park in Tanzania, my mentor, Louis Leakey, was told he was crazy. He was told the mission would fail. And I think there were many people when the biosphere was first planned who predicted that this mission also would fail. And I think one of the things we're here for today is to pay tribute to the imagination and the vision and the determination of the team of people who have made this extraordinary project a reality. Now, I love Jane Goodall. So we could all tolerate the fact that she made us stay inside the biosphere probably an extra 20 minutes. To live in a small world and be conscious of its controls, of its beauty, of its fragility, of its bounty, and its limits changes who you are.
when you're out in what seems to be almost this infinite biosphere, so big, so large, so tall, it's kind of easy to think that your actions don't count, but they do count. Today, researchers toured the inside of the facility, measuring every living plant and examining every animal. Some things have grown, some things have died, and some things have prospered. Did it go as expected? No, and that was why we did it. <laughs> we didn't know what to expect. I was back in the saddle, being the consultant for the next mission. I was given trust again, so they were true to their word. I said never again. They continued to pay me to collect data that we thought was going to be the foundation of this new discipline of biospherics. So I was completely involved all the way until that day when the marshal showed up with Steve Bannon. The management team of Biosphere 2 has been locked out of its offices and jobs. Texas billionaire Ed Bass, who bankrolled the Biosphere, has obtained a court order ousting six managing officers of the project. Among those booted out, Margaret Augustine, the company's chief executive officer, and Vice President John Allen. After some intense meetings, it was decided that the relationship should end as, as it had been. It was very difficult. Ed was under pressure to stop the bad press and to make Biosphere 2 more conventional and profitable. He brought in bankers and Wall Street types who really were focused on short-term profit and loss. John Allen sent a letter to Ed Bass, the project's financial backer, because he's afraid the focus of the project is changing from scientific research to making money. Steve Bannon came out of Goldman Sachs, and Ed made Bannon CEO. Most of the incredibly important data from Biosphere 2 was destroyed or locked up somewhere. It is a scientific crime. Why? Why were they doing this? What was this all about? I was very dubious whether or not what was happening was legal. So I continued to work under Steve Bannon, I figured that it was very important to capture what was going on. I put the tape recorder in my underwear because I was concerned that somebody would try to find it. I'm sick of these people. I'm fed up. John Allen is to blame for this. I kicked his ass. The power of this place is allowing those scientists who are really involved in study of global change, this actually allows them to study and monitor the impact of enhanced CO2 and other greenhouse gases on humans, plants, and animals. The focus was really one of space travel. We refocused it to the study of the Earth, of how the Earth works, and we partnered with not really access to the apparatus. If Bannon has denied climate change, it is not because he is not smart enough to see that there is climate change. He's doing it for another reason. It's particularly excruciating because I know how smart he is. The takeover of Biosphere 2 is what's happening in the world now. Wall Street banker types, people just interested in short-term profit and loss, push out the innovators and destroy the world.
Not to be able to go back to something of that magnitude that's the culmination of your life's work was excruciating. <sighs> I don't want to go there. looking for that place that, you know, that was special. Nobody else could see what it could be. We had more in mind to do. Those moments of all possibilities last a very short period of time. That's why you act. Biosphere 2 is it a cautionary tale. We don't need a cautionary tale anymore because all of the rampant you know, destruction and death are already happening. I think it's important for me to work on the scale that I work on now. Working with people in my community to see what we can do. Sometimes beautiful, beautiful things happen when people bring their minds together towards a common goal. You can't do it all by yourself. I live at the ranch with quite a few of the people that were there at the beginning. We're still managing the property in the Australian Outback and the art gallery in London and the rainforest in Puerto Rico and we're rebuilding the Heraclitus. We're a very high-functioning family that works through issues and keeps going for 50 years. If you can sustain a group like this. It can get you through a lot of challenges. You keep going. You go till you go till you can't go. That was Spaceship Earth, a radio adaptation of Matt Wolf's fascinating new documentary film about Biosphere 2. I offer this to entice you to see this film for yourself. It's a fascinating and wonderful story that must be seen to be fully appreciated. 
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. If you missed any of the show, or would like to hear it again, or would like to share it with somebody, you can find the show and all Magical Mystery Tour shows in our permanent archive at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. Or by Googling The Magical Mystery Tour and WGDR.